Y'all are too good. Is it good, Josh? Well, thank you so much. You've all been too good for us the entire month, but thank you so much. Read before opening. If you remember last year, you got a really nice photo album of Crossroads through the year. This year, we decided to mix it up a bit. You're getting a do-it-yourself kit. Just kidding. This is just a prelude to the real thing. It seems to be running behind. Oh, okay. No kidding. Wow. Yeah, thank you all so much. You've been good to us always since we've been here, but especially this month, you've been really kind to us, showing us your appreciation. And like I said last week, we're the ones blessed to be in this church family, and we're just so happy to be part of Crossroads. And you all make it great to be here, and we're just so thankful for every one of you. Yeah, thank you so much for the entire month of showing us your love, and we love you right back. Yes, we sure do. All right, well, this morning we're going to continue our series examining the seven churches of Revelation. Today we're going to turn again to Revelation chapter 2, but we advance a little bit forward in the second chapter as we turn our attention to the third church, which is the church at Pergamum. Now, some of the translations that you may prefer, that you may have, may not say Pergamum, they may say Pergamos, but don't fret, don't worry, they're one of the same. It seems the King James uses the word Pergamos, and it seems the more modern translations now use the word Pergamum to describe the city and to list it. Some scholars suggest it changed because if you're in Turkey, where the city was now located or used to be, then they would pronounce it Pergamum rather than Pergamos. It doesn't matter either way. That is a church we discussed today, Pergamos or Pergamum. I'll be referring to it as Pergamum because that's the way the English Standard Version refers to it as the Church of Pergamum. But before we dive into the text and begin to discuss and analyze the Church of Pergamum, let's go back and quickly recap some things that we learned upon the first two churches. You remember they are real churches with real people with real problems. They, yes, they were written many, many years ago. In fact, many scholars believe that John wrote this Again, exiled to the island of Patmos when he probably around 80, 95, 96 received this vision and then wrote the book of Revelation. Yeah, that was a long time ago, even before or after Noah, but maybe before John. Okay, sometime within that mix of time. But they still apply to us today. We find that in the last couple of weeks. Remember the first church we discussed in the beginning of chapter 2 was Ephesus. Historically, scholars have assigned the era of A.D. 33 to 100 as being the time that was relevant to that church of Ephesus and what we can learn from it because it lost its first love. That's how it was known. That's how it was labeled. It had lost its first love, the loveless church, or the church that abandoned its first love. But sadly, as we began to consider the first church at Ephesus, the loveless church, we found we could easily apply that to today, as many people seem to have abandoned or lost their first love for Christ, if they even had any love for him at all, such as the new generation. 
I'm not picking on teenagers, but we've been talking several weeks now about how this new generation, we're thankful to have teenagers in our presence, who've been talking about how this new generation, Generation Z, from the age of 12 to 24, has no regard, nothing to want to do with Christianity. They don't even pursue it, having no biblical worldview. It might be a little repetitious, yes, but let us look at the research findings once more so we become one more time familiar with what Generation Z is doing in regards to Christianity. It says Generation Z is disconnecting completely from religion, spirituality, and the larger questions of life. The Barna Group, which does a lot of studies like this, characterizes Generation Z as the first truly post-Christian generation. Amazing. 4% adhering to a biblical worldview. As a result, Scripture authority is coming under fire, and fewer teenagers are trusting what the Bible has to say about contemporary issues. It's an amazing statistic, but one we need to keep reminding ourselves about with what's happening currently into our world with our young people. They've never received their first love. They've lost, they didn't lose it because they never had it. Maybe they completely abandoned it and walked away, disregarding it completely. That's how we applied some things happened to the church at Ephesus. But while that was Ephesus, last week we moved into our second church, which is the church of Smyrna. You may remember it's like 35 miles away from Ephesus, kind of due north, maybe a little bit east. But recall that Smyrna had a historical significance or relevance of just around A.D. 100 to 314. It was known as the Martyr Church. In that time frame of AD 100 to 314, scholars had discerned that about 5 million Christians were persecuted in that particular era. It was known again as the Martyr Church, the ones that were persecuted. Some held fast to the belief, and they dearly paid for it. But again, modern-day applications seem to still be relevant and true. Because Christians today are still subject to persecution. No, maybe we don't see it so much in our country. But it's prevalent in countries that are still hostile to Christianity. Last week, I didn't put it in numerical fashion to show you just how hostile some countries in this world are to Christians. But digging a little deeper this week, I wanted to show you. Borrowed upon Christianity Today, they listed 50 countries where it's the most dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. The list comes from Open Doors, which has monitored Christian persecution worldwide since 1992. But again, the article in Christianity Today, using the work of Open Doors, was listing 50 countries where it's most dangerous to be following Jesus. I said 50 countries. Not 10, not 20, but 50 countries in this world was dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. Open Doors conducted a study in their research. They found that 40 nations a year ago scored high enough to register very high persecution levels. But this year, it rose from 40 very high to 45 of the 50. It was persecution is almost imminent. For people who follow Jesus. 
Now, having said that, here are the top 10. They're probably no surprise to you. North Korea tops the list and has been at the top of the list since 2002. You also got Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, and Eritrea, which is a country I really don't know anything about and didn't even know was in the top 10. So I looked, and it's a country in South Africa, Eritrea. Sudan, Yemen, Iran, those don't surprise you a whole lot, probably. And then India, who cracked the top 10 for the first time in the research by Open Doors. So you see that list, maybe you're asking, well, I thought China was kind of opposed to the gospel, opposed to Christianity. And yes, they are. But China, a year ago, was still in the top 50. They were 43rd. But this year, they rose to 27. But China has so many people. The numbers of Christians persecuted in China has rose to 16 million. That's amazing. Remember, the era that was the martyr church of Smyrna from 8100 to 314 had 5 million. They estimated to be persecuted. China alone, they said, was 16 million. But altogether, the research of Open Doors found that 260 million Christians are in danger, still today, worldwide, subject to persecution, even to their death. That's an amazing finding, the statistic. Yeah, that time was known as the martyr church, but we could still easily apply that to today, like we did with the loveless church at Ephesus. So what we're finding in our research and our messages and study of the seven churches is that while they have some historical relevance to a particular era in church history, they still apply today. So with that, then, it's time to move on to our third church, again, the church at Pergamum. Scholars have assigned the historical relevance of about A.D. 314 to about 590. And we're going to find, then, that they've labeled, and maybe appropriately have labeled, the church at Pergamum as the compromising church. The compromising church. Which the very title seems a bit interesting. Because we begin to apply all the churches to our day, I think we could probably find some churches today that are truly compromising. Believers, Christians, and churches today, yes, they are compromising their faith and their belief. But that's getting a little bit ahead of where we need to be. Let's turn our attention to the reading first, which is found again in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to dive into verses 12 through 17, which pertain to the church of Pergamum. So stand with me this morning, if you're able to, as we stand simply to honor the reading of the word. Here's what the word tells us in Revelation chapter 2. Again, John writing in his vision, probably around A.D. 95-96, to the church of Pergamum. It says this in verse 12, Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. 
and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. Therefore, verse 16 says to repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Oh, Father, Lord, we come before you this morning, having read the word, and just bless the Lord to receive it and just ask for a blessing to be upon it. We turn our attention now, Lord, to yet another church of the seven. We ask today, Lord, that the Spirit will lead and guide that the words that I said would not be the words that I want to say, but what we need to hear in regards to church that begin to compromise in their beliefs. So, Lord, we invite the Spirit then to lead and to guide and let us learn about the church, but more importantly, perhaps see how it applies to our lives and to other believers today. So let's be thankful for what shall happen here today, what we shall learn, and how we can apply it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've read the text, maybe the first place to start is at the very beginning in verse 12, obviously. And we turn our attention now to verse 12. Similar to last week when we began to dissect the letter written to the church of Smyrna, we see in the address, which is the first verse to the church, that Christ has a new way to describe himself. Look again at verse 12. Look at the words in which Christ describes himself. Because what you see is something yet again unique and different from the other churches. He describes himself as the one who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, it's notable that the sharp, two-edged sword comes up again in verse 16, when Jesus states, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So this sword has been mentioned now a couple of times within this short segment of verses pertaining to only the church of Pergamum. So it begs the question then, what does it mean that Christ has the sharp, double-edged sword? Of course, you may already know the answer, that the answer basically says the sword is the word of God. And Jesus then is the one who will come with the sword, prepared to fight and rebuke the compromising church with the word. Now, if you're familiar with Ephesians, which probably you are, when Paul wrote the letter to the church of Ephesus many years ago, do you know that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, to the believers, and tells them to be equipped with the armor of God? It's written in Ephesians chapter 6, where he tells them to take up total armor. And he begins to list the armor that each and every day all of us need to be equipped with. But notice in the last verse, in verse 17, of course he says, take the helmet of salvation, which is another portion of the armor. But then he ends with, take the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. So this sword comes up quite often in scriptures, not just Revelation, if we find it used twice in Pergamum, it's also used in Ephesians in the letter to the believers. But it also comes up in Hebrews. The unknown author of Hebrews in chapter 4 refers to it once more. He says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, and of morrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, as now we 
drawn our attention to many different scriptures, at least four, that have drawn our attention to the sword. We begin to properly understand the sword is directly relating to the word. So the question then is, if we think about Pergamum again, is maybe why or how? I mean, why does Jesus need to come to Pergamum prepared to use the sword, which we now know is the word of God? Or how will the word, the sword, help the people or the church of Pergamum? How will the word, known as the sword, help us help them at Pergamum? Well, the quick and easy answer becomes a point of the message, which is this. That the word of God has the answer to man's need and to man's sin. Man again, you generically, mankind. The word of God has the answer that we need to help us any time in life, and especially with the sin that we have. It's the word of God that can help us and direct us. The church of Pergamum certainly needs to stand up on it and see it to be true. And the fact is that too many people today quickly discount the word of God. They simply state that the Bible is just not relevant anymore. They argue that times have changed. But the Bible has not changed and therefore it's not useful and not helpful in our daily lives. That's the argument you may get from some people. But I would strongly disagree. I take the word as the absolute truth. In a day when truth is all relative, there is one truth and it is the word of God. It is authoritative, it is sufficient, it is infallible, it is inerrant. And it offers guidance to every aspect of our lives as Christians. No, it hasn't changed. And it never will. Sheila communicated that to the children, but there's scripture to give us evidence that it will never change. In Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It will stand forever. Maybe Malachi 3, 6 says it all. For I am the Lord. I change not. And I, for one, am thankful that God and his word never changes and has remained the same in a rapidly changing world. I talk to my grandchildren about a telephone booth. They have no idea what I'm talking about. A telephone booth? What's a telephone booth? You remember the telephone booth? I know you do, Noah. There is no such thing anymore. Everybody carries their cell phone. I have people on the bus that I transport to school every day as a kindergartner that has their cell phone. They don't know what a phone booth is. Like, I mean, similarly, they don't know any other way to make popcorn besides a microwave. I remember before there was the microwave. Some of you do too. And how we made popcorn. It was much different than today. So times have changed rapidly. But one thing that has never changed, and I'm glad it hasn't changed, is the Word of God. But argue, others argue against its relevancy, saying in a rapidly changing world, now the Bible, the Word of God, is old and it's outdated. It has no relevancy at all to anybody anymore. 
Listen to some of the reasoning of those who argue the Bible is irrelevant. It is old and not useful. Here's the top five reasons. They say, first and foremost, it's irrelevant because the Bible is full of contradictions and discrepancies. They like to pick up on the resurrection of how there's multiple accounts written in the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and how none of them agree. I, for one, see that as not a discrepancy, not a contradiction, but for men who wrote the words pertaining to the resurrection, that all didn't get together and collude and say, hey, guys, this is how we're going to do it. Y'all ready? We're going to write this together now. I mean, I look upon it as being like a scene of an accident. If you were there and seen an accident up here at 57 at Denny's with the red truck and a white car, but yet you were not identifying it right now at the time, but six years later had to recall what happened, you may not remember it was at that intersection or that it was a red truck and a white car. Or was it a blue car and red truck? They didn't get together and collude together upon what the story was going to be. So yeah, there is going to be some differences in the story. But you read the entire Gospels to get the full account of the resurrection. But they suggest it's just full of discrepancies and contradictions. Their second reason, they said the Bible is full of violence, a genocide, prejudice, and justice, often commanded by God, is being used by Christians to justify more violence and oppression. Thirdly, I say the Bible's descriptions of nature and natural history are hopelessly at odds with science. Duh. I mean, yes, yeah, science has the Big Bang Theory and of how all these things developed and even Darwinism and all this. The Bible clearly says, in the beginning, God created. Yeah, so they're a little bit odds of each other. Number four, the Bible is written by ancient and primitive people and has no value to modern people anymore. And fifthly, Christians can't even agree on what is seen. So who cares if it is true or not? All these things are used to be argued against the fact that the Bible is not relevant anymore. It is outdated. It is not helpful. In no way is it useful. It certainly couldn't tell us anything pertaining to help and direction of our daily lives. Instead, they'll use these self-help manuals. And they'll use those then to be able to help people in life. I refer to the Bible. But maybe the entire argument against this relevancy could be summed up by United Kingdom online newspaper called The Independent. When it sums it up by saying this, that Christianity is not the problem, the Bible is. The Bible faces more criticism today than any point in church history. Be it it stands and passes the test of time. Why? How can it test the time and the criticism that's faced every day? Because it is relevant. It is useful. It is helpful. Paul correctly stated in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I mean, listen, would, it, would the Bible teach you how to change the oil in your car? No. Would the Bible teach you or tell you how to make a cake, how to 
what all the ingredients are, get them together, and how to tell you bake a cake? Tell you 350 degrees, your eggs, your flour, all that? No. It doesn't tell you how to change your oil. It doesn't tell you how to make a bake a cake. But it shouldn't tell you those things. It's the Word of God, not a car manual, not a recipe. It has proven itself over the years. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It never changes and stays constant in a rapidly ever-changing world. As one commentator I was reading stated, the Bible is God's story. We read it to learn about Jesus. The Bible is relevant because the way to heaven and the road to hell have remained the same, and this is the message every single person on earth needs to hear. John 3.16 is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Suffice it to say, the Bible has withstood many criticisms and probably many more. But it offers guidance to every day in our lives as Christian believers. It offers the guidance that we need. Which now getting back to the text in the city and church of Pergamum. If they then would have stood firm in the word, it would provide the guidance they needed to protect pertaining to how maybe they could avoid the false religion and the worship that was happening. I mean, God's word advises, it commands. In, Gen in Exodus chapter 20, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. That seems pretty clear to me. Verse 4, you shall make, not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. In verse 5, in case there's any confusion, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Even Matthew and Luke wrote, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. It seems pretty clear. There's only one God, and that's who we worship. But the church of Pergamum, over time, gravitated to pagan worship. They compromised their faith and their beliefs. And they're called out for it. Look again to rebuking verses 14 and 15. It spells out the extent of the idolatry and the false worship happening in the church. A few things against you. You have verse 14. He says, you have some there at the church who hold to the teaching of Balaam. We'll expand later. Verse 16 or verse 15. You also have some who hold to the teaching Nicolaitans. Notice how he spells out specifically what he's seeing them doing in regards to their idolatry and their false worship is what he has against the church. We're going to come back to that in just a moment, but a quick timeout. Because to help us understand what's ongoing in the church and the city of Pergamum, it's helpful to know a little bit about the city itself. So here we go with understanding a little bit about Pergamum. Pergamum as a city was just another wonderful, beautiful city. Similar in perhaps to Smyrna, it was a beautiful city itself. But maybe Pergamum had a little more going for it with its offering to the people and its beauty because it was known as the capital of Asia. It was built upon a rocky hill where the Mediterranean Sea could be seen on a clear day. A rather breathtaking view. 
We can relate, if you will, to picture in our mind the view and the beauty of the Pergamum. Like if you've ever gone somehow to the Smoky Mountains and you see all these lake houses or all these houses built up in the mountains and they got this beautiful view overlooking all the scenery and things below it. I mean, especially at this time of the year when the leaves begin to change color, it is breathtaking. It is beautiful. We can relate it somehow to those people who live in those houses way up on the hill. Or Sheila and I could relate it in, in our time. We go to the lake house of Kentucky. We have a lake house we're staying at that you blessed us with. And the lake house is built upon a hill, and we're overseeing Lake Barkley. It's a beautiful scene, again, this time of the year when some of the fall colors begin to happen. So that's Pergamum. I mean, a beautiful city upon a hill overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. So the beautiful scenery is how we see Pergamum. It was stunningly beautiful. But not only did it have the beauty of the Rocky Mount, it boasted itself as the capital. A capital that offered many perks for the people who lived there, such as the fact that it had this great extensive library. At the time, 200,000 volumes was a great amount of literature to have publications. In fact, it was the largest and greatest in the pagan world, accessible to those people who lived in Pergamum. They boasted upon those things that they were available to them. But it also had a temple built to Caesar Augustus, thereby making it the royal city. And Caesar, a lot of times, go there when the climate became, got cold in Rome. It had a temple built to Dionysus the guy, the royal kings. It had a healing spa. You ready for that? If you're living in Pergamum, you can go to this healing spa with a dedicated temple to Asclepius, the god of healing and medicine. The love and admiration of Asclepius resulted not only a temple, but a hospital. They had a hospital in Pergamum. Oakland City got a hospital. They had a hospital in Pergamum. It was the greatest hospital in the ancient world. So a lot of things are going for Pergamum, the capital of Asia. This beautiful city, stunningly beautiful. A lot of things are going for it, which would make someone want to be there. But by far the thing that happened most frequently in Pergamum is the false idolatrous worship. It was so prevalent, it began to infiltrate the church. And when it infiltrated the church, it began to corrupt it. Scholars use three words to describe Pergamum in the church. Morally dark place. Pergamum is described as a morally dark place. Let me ask you, do you know of any morally dark place? Places that just reek of filth and sin and corruption? You may think, that's our government. But yet, look upon what specifically the letter says to them in relation to a morally dark place. It's referred to as Satan's seat or Satan's throne. Verse 13. Is I know Reed well, 
where Satan's throne is. He admires those who hold fast to my name, won't deny the faith in the days of Anipos, my faithful witness. But he said, it's where Satan dwells. Notice that in the course of giving accommodation to the church, what I find amazing in verse 13, which is supposed to be accommodation, not a rebuke, but accommodation given to the church, even amidst of that, the accommodation, Christ still puts a condemning spin on the church of Pergamon by referring to it as Satan's seat or Satan's throne. I mean, yes, admittedly, there is a group, a remnant in the church that's holding fast, that's standing firm. And we should admire them. I mean, they're holding fast and not denying Christ, similar, if you will, to what was happening to Smyrna, to those who were being persecuted. Their loyalty, steadfast, and the faithfulness is shining through. But note how it even tells us that there's just one witness, Anipus, who stands out as recognized in this verse. And by the way, no one has ever quite figured out exactly who Anipus is. So in the midst of maybe praise given to the church, accommodation, for those standing loyal and having allegiance to Christ, there's still many more that are bowing to these pagan gods, worshiping them. So they get this harsh rebuke, all because they're referred to as Satan's seat, Satan's throne. How would you like the church to be called today Satan's seat or Satan's throne? I would never want that upon our church. I never want that upon any church to be referred to and called Satan's throne or Satan's seat. I mean, if we're listening, and we should begin to ponder, well, what is Satan's seat? I mean, what is exactly he's saying here? I mean, why would he say this is Satan's throne, this is Satan's seat? Well, answers begin to vary as we put an answer to it. But even maybe he's talking about then the beautifully erected temples that we said is in the city. Maybe this great temple of Asclepius, the pagan god of healing, which is also, by the way, figurative, and symbolic of a serpent. Others suggest that the throne of Satan there is just a figurative, simply used to make a referral to the city's reputation as being the city that just worshipped the emperor and other pagan gods. But what I found was interesting during the time of research for Pergamum was a comment by J. Vernon McGee that says, the simple, it's just as simple as this. That Pergamum is Satan's headquarters. I think that's an interesting comment that McGee would suggest that Pergamum is just simply Satan's headquarters. Because I don't think about Satan having a headquarters. If I began to think that maybe some city, some place on earth, particularly United States, could be labeled or viewed as Satan's headquarters, the first thing that pops in my mind might have been New Orleans. Or, better yet, Vegas, Sin City. But nevertheless, in, in this letter to Pergamum, Jesus associates the city, the church, as the seat of Satan. Undoubtedly because the church has gravitated to a place full of evil, full of idol worship, and face pagan practices. 
false pagan practices becomes the regularity in the church. Look again at verse 14 and 15. Let's make sure we understand the extent of it. He's calling them out on their false worship, the teaching of Balaam, and the teachings of the Nicolaitans that they're holding to. And those verses beg for some elaboration, so let me give you some of that. The teaching doctrine of Balaam, which you find in verse 14, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, is referring directly to an Old Testament account in Numbers chapter 25. In which Balaam, a false prophet in the time of Moses and Joshua, taught Balak, the king of Moab, the method of reducing Israel's strength and effectiveness. Israel, as it should be, was in a covenant relationship with God. But because of Israel's new covenant relationship with God, they could not be defeated. They could not be cursed. So Balak sought out Balaam. And subsequently, Balaam counseled Balak that if the Israelites were to marry pagan Moabites and adopt the religious rites and immoral practices, that God would be angry at them and it'd be their downfall. Well, that's precisely what's happening in Pergamon. The people in Pergamon have adopted completely other items and have had all these sexual and moral practices. That's exactly what's happening. And it allowed this intermarriage that happened between Jews and others. I mean, as Christ viewed that, he said, that's worse than leaving your first love, which was happening at Ephesus. I mean, you've abandoned your faith. You've abandoned everything you know to be right. You're doing something you know to be wrong. And he said, that is completely and totalizing and compromising your beliefs. Completely, totally compromising your faith and your beliefs. They know not to be doing that. But yet they're engaging in pagan worship. They're engaging in intermarriage between Jews and unsafe pagans and gravitating to that type of worship. In simple terms, is accepting the worldly teaching and not stopping. But becoming precisely like the world and compromising everything you've been taught and everything you know to be true, which is the word of God. Further evidence of the compromise reference to the Nicolaitans, verse 15. You may remember the Nicolaitans that come up once before in the church of Ephesus. Yeah, there's that big debate upon exactly who the Nicolaitans are. But note, if you will, the church at Pergamum was holding to whatever the doctrine was exactly the Nicolaitans, verse, six, verse 15. But the church at Ephesus hated the deeds of Nicolaitans. So there's a big, big difference between what was happening with the reference coming up to Nicolaitans in Ephesus. They hated the work of the Nicolaitans. But in Pergamum, in verse 15, you see they're adopting it, they're holding it, they're practicing the same thing, whatever it may be, which is false worship, false practices, not true to the Bible. So that's what's happening, but let me put it in perspective for you. Let me make it true. Let me bring it back to us in our day, our time. I mean, but put it in perspective, that would be like our church accepting the false doctrine being preached today. Listening to it, entertaining it, and completely accepting it. 
It'd be like us listening to what the world is telling us, imitating the world and putting it into practice. Now, some of you may be aware of the very controversial decision made by the United Methodist Church. They're not the only church. They're not picking up on the Methodist Church. Don't get me wrong. Presbyterians have also already done the same thing. But in short, the United Methodist Church, their governing body, which met earlier during the summer at the most recent conference they had, the governing body moved to accept the way of the world, which directly meant for the United Methodist Church to allow homosexual men to be in the pulpit. I mean, I have great friends that I talk to regularly that are pastors in the United Methodist Church. And they are very upset with what's happening with the leadership. The leadership's position, which they've already had women in the pulpit, but now they are really upset that this leadership's position is now to accept homosexual men in the pulpit. Now, maybe I'm stepping out of bounds. I'm not picking up on the Methodist church. Don't get me wrong. But is that not a picture of compromise to the Word of God? I mean, Paul rightfully declared in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. As we begin to apply what's happened to Pergamum to modern day, we must not compromise what the Bible instructs. And we have to be careful of toleration, which means the time we may have to take a stand. You may remember that when the Supreme Court of the United States made same-sex marriage legal in 2015, there was suddenly a woman in Kentucky who got national attention, actually some international attention. Kimberly Jean Davis was a county clerk for Rowan, Kentucky. And she gained that attention that she didn't seek upon herself when she defied the federal court order to issue marriage license to a same-sex couple. Kimberly didn't ask for that attention. She was simply standing firm in her beliefs. She took a stand. She didn't want to compromise. Did it make her popular? Absolutely not. In fact, whenever she came back up for re-election, she got severely defeated. But she held to her beliefs. She held to her faith-based position according to the Word of God. She would not compromise. So here's the overall point that maybe we're saying this morning that we need to learn from Perkin. That we must stand firm in our beliefs. We must not let the world dictate our position, and we must never compromise. We're going to have more pertaining to Pergamum next week, but what you need to know today is that compromise is the first step to corruption. Now think about that. Compromise is the first step to corruption. And unfortunately, Pergamum's compromise of sound biblical doctrine, the absolute word of God, led to a corrupted church practicing worldly pagan standards. The message is do not follow the ways of the world. 
as Christians, as believers, if we're to follow anyone or anything, then we follow Jesus. Paul instructed Ephesians in the letter, in chapter 5 of verse 1, be imitators of God. That sounds rather simple. That's who we imitate. That's who we follow. We follow God and his word. That applies to you and me as much as it did to the Ephesians written way back. That we follow the one who gave his life for us. We do not compromise and follow the world. We do not accept their doctrine. We do not accept their standards. We follow the standard written in the absolute truth, the sword, the word of God. We do not compromise. We stand firm on our faith our beliefs and to not be embarrassed about it we follow one and the one we follow is named jesus father lord thank you for this message today as we begin to look at the church at pergamum lord we see a compromising church and we gather together today to hear a little bit about the church lord we got more to consider yes but today we begin to consider what's happening in the church and we pray for our church especially our church, Lord, but the church in our country, for the church in general, Lord, to stand firm on the word, to have the sound doctrine that the Bible declares and to accept it as true, as absolute. Lord, here at Crossroads, that's what we shall do. We shall accept the word to be true. We shall have our doctrine to be sound biblically. Let us not gravitate to the false teaching of this world. I pray for us as individuals now publicly together as a church that we would stand true to your word. And the one that we follow, Lord, would be Jesus. Let's just as Christians, the believers today, just simply follow Jesus. Lord, thank you for how the word today declares that truth to us. Let's apply that to our lives right here, right now, today, Lord. To simply put everything else aside and to follow Jesus. Just follow your only son who died for us. Who then in turn gave us life. Eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.